Today is the day of the empty tomb. Um, but not everybody sees it the way that we do. In his very excellent book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell describes several naturalistic approaches to try to explain away the resurrection. Um, the oldest of the theories actually is spoken about in Matthew 28, when the chief priests bribed the guards to say that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Now keep in mind, these men were locked up in a, the upper room, terrified. They all deserted him. They all ran away. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, John is the only one who actually showed up at the crucifixion itself. But now we're supposed to believe all of a sudden they become brave and emboldened and try to steal the, the, the body away? Highly unlikely. Also keep in mind, I have a feeling that the guards shared some of the bribe with their, those over them because they would have been put to death for falling asleep on their watch. Another theory that has been proposed is that Jesus was actually unconscious on the cross. He did not actually die. It's sometimes called the swoon theory. So they bring him down from the grave, they prepare him as quickly as they can, wrap him up in the cloth, they put him in the grave, the stone is rolled, the stone is sealed. And again, we're supposed to believe that somehow this man who had been beaten within an inch of his life, who had a spear thrust in his side, was awakened by the coolness of the tomb, was able to get out of the cloths, was able to roll the stone away, and show up to his disciples saying, I'm back. Again, absolutely absurd. Plus, the Romans and the Jews both knew when a man dies on the cross, he is truly and thoroughly dead. He's not going to be able to revive. Absurd. A third theory is that the disciples were suffering from a mass hallucination. They wanted to believe Jesus had risen from the dead so badly that they just imagined and, and saw him wherever they went. Well, there are several things that are a problem with that. Um, number one, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So why all of a sudden do they believe in it so, so vehemently that they have this mass hallucination? And then there's a small problem with science. Those who are wanting to explain away the empty tomb on rational thought and behavior are arguing for something that science has never proven exists. A mass hallucination? Paul says in Corinthians that 500 brethren saw him in Galilee. Another theory I shared with the Crusaders this week is the wrong tomb theory. In short, the women were so upset when they were going to, to prepare Jesus for his burial that they wound up going to the wrong tomb. And that the man sitting there was a gardener who literally said, why are you looking for him here? He's not here. Go look where, he's, where they laid him. And uh, again, they mistook him for an angel, and start running back, he's alive. Well, to think that these women who love Christ so dearly would not know where the tomb is is a little bizarre. And then add to that, Peter and John 
supposedly ran back to the exact same wrong tomb? Hard to imagine. A huge stretch of the imagination. Now, the oddest theory that I've ever heard, and it's not in Medal's book, but it is absolutely, get ready for this, okay? The identical twin theory. Someone actually proposed that Jesus had an identical twin that stayed in the background till after the crucifixion shows up and says, I'm alive. Folks, that sounds like a bad Monty Python skit. Uh, It's just absolutely crazy. And by the way, no one has ever seriously taken that theory to heart. But this begs a question. Why do people who obviously do not believe in miracle, why do people who obviously do not believe that Christ is alive go out of their way to prove that the tomb was empty because of something else besides the resurrection? And it's actually rather simple. The enemies of the faith have long understood the importance of the resurrection, maybe more so than some of us who profess faith in Christ. You see, those who would dismiss our faith understand that without the resurrection of Christ, Christianity falls. It cannot exist. It cannot go on if Christ is not raised from the tomb. And so we need to understand fully and completely how important the resurrection is to our faith. And to do so, we're going to look at Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 12 through 20. Now, the only reason Paul wrote what he was writing was because of a flawed understanding of some of the Corinthians. They were from a Greek background. And in Greek philosophy and general understanding, the body is bad. Anything that has physicality is at best not good. And their whole way of life, their whole understanding of life after death was get rid of the body which hinders you and become this immortal spirit. They could not conceive of why someone who's been set free would want to come back to a body. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. And so some of these believers apparently just could not let go of that idea. So Paul had to write and correct them. He had to point out, if you deny the bodily resurrection, you are in fact denying the resurrection of Christ. And if that didn't happen, well... See what he has to say. Would you stand as the word is read? But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. 
But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Amen and amen. In our text, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians about the importance of the resurrection. And along with those believers from centuries ago, we need to understand that Christ's resurrection is absolutely essential to our faith. We must not back down from this truth. We must not apologize for this truth. We need to understand. And we cannot allow anyone to cause us to lose sight of this truth. So Paul is talking about the resurrection in a series of negative statements. Um, But at the end, he says, but Christ has been raised indeed. And that one statement goes back and, if you will, negates all the negations. So we're going to take a look at this to begin with from the positive perspective. Christ has risen and so, so let's take a look. Since Christ is risen from the dead, and Christ is risen indeed, Christ's resurrection confirms the gospel message. Christ's resurrection confirms what the gospel has to say, and we need to understand this and grab hold of it. You see, Paul, writing to these believers, wanted to make this plain. Paul wrote that without the resurrection, the gospel could not save. The good news of Jesus Christ would not bring anybody into faith. It would not bring anybody into hope. Because he says if Christ isn't risen, the gospel itself is a lie. It is not good news. And that's what gospel means. Gospel simply is good news. The euangelion. It is the word of life and hope. But if Christ is dead, if Christ never came out of that tomb, he said anything that any time we have testified of God's love, of God's working to save us, of God raising Jesus from the dead, we who have been preaching are liars. It didn't happen. And if we are liars, then the gospel cannot be trusted. For a cross without the empty tomb would have made Jesus himself a liar and a fool. He said, I came to give my life a ransom for many. He said, they're going to take and kill me, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. And if that's not true, boy, did he miss it. He did not understand himself. He lied and he was a fool. So Paul's word is is so important that we understand. 
Paul said, if he isn't raised, then you are fools for believing. But since Christ is risen, the gospel really is good news. Truly good news. And he's letting them know. I and everyone else like me who has preached the good news of Jesus Christ that said He died for our sins, was raised from the dead. We're not false teachers. We're not giving you lies about God. God indeed sent His Son to die to pay the price for sin. We opened this worship service up with a song about the cross and the fact that Jesus died on our behalf. And that is true. But God doesn't just provide a substitutionary sacrifice. He didn't just provide the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by His death. Because if that's all that happened, if all that happened was He died, it was a martyr's death. Nothing less, but certainly nothing more. But Christ has risen from the dead. And so the good news of Jesus Christ preached by Paul and others are true. And because of that, you and I, folks, because of that, we can live lives of joy. Because the gospel is a reality. It is not an empty promise. It's true. It's rich. It's real. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, The Gospel of God, said, Christian joy is that which realizes the holiness of God in the depths of sin. Christ coming from heaven and giving himself unto blood for ruined man. That leads to holy joy and a thanksgiving, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why can we be joyful? Because Good Friday really was good. He was the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And that was proven when He was risen from the dead. It's true. It's the exclamation point that Christ is our ransom. Christ is our deliverer. He is our Savior. And God said, it's true. For He lives. He lives. Well, because He lives and we can have joy, part of that rejoicing comes when we realize Christ's resurrection reveals that faith is not empty. Faith is not empty. Now Paul wrote in, in, in such a way as to make it absolutely clear, the most most definite way he could have said it. Paul wrote that without the resurrection, Christian faith was futile. Now the word that is translated futile in the NIV means devoid of truth. It means it is a lie. It has no power. It has no strength. A.T. Robertson was probably our first great Baptist uh, New Testament scholar, when it came to the language the New Testament was written, and pointed out that it is even a stronger word than the word useless in verse 14. When Paul says that Christ isn't raised, our preaching is useless, 
and your faith is useless. And that means empty. But this is a strong word. It's a lie. It's, it's foolishness. It's not real. And he was letting them know, having believed a lie, you are still trapped in your sin. Christ didn't take it away from you. Christ didn't deliver you from it. Christ didn't give you hope. Any hope for forgiveness was nothing more than wishful thinking. But they still bore their sin. And any thought of new life was nothing more than an ethereal dream. What some have called a pipe dream. So high on the opium that you're imagining things that aren't real. And that's again why Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are preaching. But Paul's letting them know, if there is no resurrection, then those who are perishing are right. If there is no resurrection, they are right. The preaching of the cross is foolishness. And anyone who would believe in it is a fool. But Paul affirms with that one statement. Christ has risen indeed. Paul affirms since Christ has risen, faith opens a door to the reality of a true and living salvation. He was telling him, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been paid for. Your sins are washed away because Christ was the perfect sacrifice dying in our place. Paul would write, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's true. It's real. And when he said, I've come to get pay the price, I've come to pay the ransom for many who are lost, he meant it. And God affirmed it. And so because that affirmation is real, because our faith is not cross our fingers and hope. Our faith is not, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if Our faith is based on the reality of an empty tomb. Because Christ is risen. And we can live lives of peace knowing that our faith is grounded upon a promise confirmed by God Himself. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Every promise of God is yes in Christ. And so we can say amen to him. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, everything he had ever said, everything that God had revealed, and those passages in the Old Testament that made reference not only to the death of Christ, but the fact that God would not leave him in death. Is real. We can have peace. Peace with God. Not because we're great people. Not because we're wonderful people who deserve it. 
We have peace with God because Christ died in our place. Because Christ is raised. Warren Wiersbe said the world bases its peace on resources. While God's peace depends on relationships. To be right with God means to enjoy the peace of God. And the world depends on personal ability. But Christians depend on spiritual adequacy in Christ. In the world, peace is something you hope for or work for. But to the Christian, peace is God's wonderful gift received by faith. Peace. That's why Paul calls it the peace that surpasses all understanding in Philippians. Because the world will never understand that peace. We could never know that peace. Except Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And because of that peace, Folks, the final thing I want to share with you is so important. And we've already sung about it today. But it is so true and it is so real and it is so powerful. Christ's resurrection provides life beyond this world. We have the promise that death is not the end. It's not the cessation of who we are. You see, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, hoping that they will catch everything he says, he brings up something that would be hard for them to grab hold of, hard for them to recognize. Without the resurrection, Paul wrote that without the resurrection, all who died in faith were simply dead. Now, I probably need to clarify that. In fact, I know I do. Because Paul, what Paul said was not that they are just dead physically. He's saying they are both dead physically and they are dead spiritually. That's why the NIV translates that those who died before are lost. But folks, that word translated lost in verse 18 again, is much stronger. Mark Taylor's pointed out that the word means to be destroyed. The word means, and it is often applied to those without faith, who die without faith, who find themselves in that old-fashioned word, perdition, spiritual death before a holy God. Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, any belief in life after death is futile. And can you imagine having accepted Christ, having come to faith, and watched those people in your life that you love who have died, and you've had a hope That they are with the Lord. And now Paul says if there is no resurrection. And Christ is not raised. They're gone. One of the toughest funerals I ever did. 
I had not been a pastor for a very long time. But we had a woman die. She no longer lived in our community. She had gone off into the Dallas area to live out her life. But they brought her back to the little community I was in that she grew up in. Half of her family were people of faith. And she had a very strong testimony as a child of God. Half of them had faith. Half of them did not. And at the end of that service, I offered what hope I could. I pointed to the Word of God. And the people who had faith grieved. I'm not saying they were happy she was gone. They were grieving. But they had hope. The other half, in their mind, she was gone forever. I was about 23, 24. And I'm watching family member after family member almost collapsing at the casket. One of her grandsons tried to crawl into the casket with her. And I was torn by their grief. Paul is saying, all who went ahead, all who believed in life without the resurrection, they have eternally perished. Without the promise of eternal life, the Christian faith was nothing more than a joke. And such belief was a pitiful mistake. Paul said, if we only have hope in this world, we are of all people to be most pitied. A.T. Robertson, now keep in mind, he wrote this in 1930. If our hope is limited to this life, we have denied ourselves what people call pleasures and have no happiness beyond. Paul makes morality turn on the hope of immortality. Is he not right? Witness the breaking of moral ties today when people take a merely animal view of life. Folks, if all we are are the highest mammal on the evolutionary chain, if we're just an animal, there are a lot of people living today, I'm going to do what I want to do. There are no absolutes, there are no rights or wrongs. I will live the way I want to live. There is no God that will hold me accountable. Mark Taylor cited R.B. Hayes and saying, now Paul isn't saying that there is no benefit to following Christ right now in this life. What Paul is saying is that our faith is so tied to the truth That Jesus not only died, he was raised from the dead. It is so connected to that truth that if you divorce it from that truth, it means nothing. Absolutely nothing. And yet, Paul says, Christ has risen indeed. 
And since Christ has risen, we have the hope of life everlasting. You see, the richness of our faith, the depth of our faith is is based and built upon a hope for what lies ahead. I'm going to use a real big theological term for you, just letting you know I do know some of them. Ours is an eschatological hope. It's about what happens at the end. It is building us to that moment in time when God will bring all of this to a close. Christ will return, not as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but as King of kings, Lord of lords. The kingdom of God will be ushered in. And every hope that we have in Christ will ultimately be fulfilled. Those who have died in Christ, Paul is saying, have been welcomed into the kingdom of God. And he's telling the Corinthians, Christians awaiting the return of Christ had reason to believe there is more than just this world. He's letting them know if you should die before he returns, you too will join the company of saints assembled before the throne. We're not to be pitied, he's telling them. Christ is alive. There's nothing that we have given up, nothing we have turned our back on that will not prove in the end worth it. The life of faith is proved that life can be more abundant. To the Romans, Paul wrote, Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Blaise Pascal, French mathematician, philosopher, theologian, wrote that faith is kind of like a roll of the dice. There is a possibility that you will be proven wrong. But he said, for me, there is enough evidence that Christ is who he said he was. There is enough faith statements made that I'm willing to step out on that faith and trust that Christ is real and what He's promised is ours. So I'm ready. And Paul is saying that we can live lives of hope knowing that the resurrection of our Lord holds the promise of our resurrection. We have hope. And folks, I don't know about you, but hope sometimes it's that hope that keeps me moving forward. When this world is so full of evil and shame and sin, when it feels like the darkness is is creeping over us and eventually will put out the flame, when it feels as if There's nothing left. The hope 
of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he gave us helps us get out of bed in the morning. Helps us to face life. Because he lives. I can face tomorrow. A.W. Tozer. If you never read Tozer, you need to start. He read a book, wrote a book called I Call It Heresy and Other Timely Topics from First Peter. Now, brethren, what is it that makes our Christian hope a living hope? And gives it its reality and substance for the future? The answer is clear and plain. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is God's gracious guarantee of our blessed future. I dare say this to you, my friends. Your Christian hope is just as good as Jesus Christ. Your anticipation for the future lives or dies with Jesus. If he is who he said he was, you can spread your wings and soar. If he is not, you will fall to the ground like a lump of lead. Jesus Christ is our hope. And God has raised him from the dead. And since Jesus overcame the grave, Christians dare to die. Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? Christ has given us life. Here. Your eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It began the moment Christ became your Lord. But it will have its fulfillment when one day we stand with a host of others gathered around the throne, worshiping God, praising the Lamb. And all of the evil that is so prevalent in our world, all of the darkness, all of the sin, all of the shame, won't even be a memory. Okay, I'm about to meddle a little bit. And this is an important medal because sometimes in our desire to escape our grief, we start saying things we probably should, well, not we, we shouldn't say. The writer of Hebrews talks about a cloud of witnesses. Gives us hope to press on. We need to understand what he's saying. He's not saying that all of heaven is looking down on us, cheering us on. That's been one way it's been interpreted. That cloud of witnesses, they witness to us because of their faith and their going forward. And this is a this is a purely emotional statement, and I understand why it's made. I'll put it personally. After Rachel's death, if I were to say, but you know, I gained strength because I know she's looking down on me and, and pushing me on and helping me. People, I don't want Rachel looking at me. I don't want my grandmother, my parents, my grandfather, 
I don't want the people who went on before me in faith looking at me. Their hearts and their minds are preoccupied with the Lord Jesus Christ, with God Him Almighty. They are praising Him. The reason I don't want them looking, I don't want to cause them pain. The Bible says there will be no tears where God is. And I know my mother, well, let me put it, there have been moments in my life my mom wouldn't have been so proud. There are moments in my life if Rachel were looking down, she'd be growling. And I wouldn't want to meet up with her in the kingdom because, boy, people, we have life. We have hope. We have truth. And one day, if Christ delays His coming, or we, as we say, if Christ's coming doesn't happen for 2,000 more years, I won't be here to greet Him. I will already have gone to meet my Lord. And that's our hope. And hope is life. Margaret Sangster Pippin, Pippin wrote in the mid-1950s, her father, British minister W. E. Sangster, began to notice some uneasiness in his throat and a dragging his leg. When he went to the doctor, he found out that he had an incurable disease that was causing progressive muscular atrophy. In other words, his muscles were gradually wasting away. And the doctor said there was nothing they could do, that his voice would eventually fail, his throat would become unable to swallow. So in the time that he had left, Sankster threw himself into his work in British home missions, figuring while he may not be able to go and he may not be able to preach, he could still write and encourage others. That he would even have more time for prayer. He pleaded, let me stay in the struggle, Lord. I don't mind if I can no longer be a general, but give me just a regiment to lead. And so he wrote articles and books. He helped organize prayer cells throughout England. And when people pitied him, he said, "Uh, I'm only in the kindergarten of suffering. Gradually, his legs did become useless. Gradually, this great man of God lost his voice completely. But he could still hold a pen even if shakily. On Easter morning, just a few weeks before he died, he wrote a letter to his daughter. In it he said, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice to shout. He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice And not want to shout. Friends. We have reason to shout this morning. Our voices should ring out with the good news. Of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have reason to shout. 
Because Christ is risen indeed. The gospel is true. Our faith is real. And the kingdom of God awaits us in its fullness. We then, we, all of us must stand ready as witnesses to a world about the risen Lord. We must commit ourselves to yielding our lives to the task He has for us. We must become troubadours, singing the songs of resurrection to a world that's dying. Today I ask you, will you pledge your life to sharing this amazing good news? Will you pledge your heart to the truth that ours is the risen Christ. And it's possible today that one of you here may not know Him. I know the majority of us here are professing Christians. But maybe you've never come to that place of yielding your life to Christ. Folks, I can't think of a better day to meet the risen Lord the day we celebrate His rising. Will this be the day you welcome the risen Christ into your life as Savior and Lord?